But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This episode is a little bit different for us because we're recording in separate locations. You had to go home to Rochester for the weekend. And so we hope that the audio quality doesn't suffer too much. Yep, I'm calling in from Rochester. I'm here for a family party. Uh, we are Zooming and I set the mixer up for you. But yet we're very lucky because normally we can record in the same house at the same table using the same mic. <laughs> so this we've done it before, but it's unusual. We are at the end of Wimbledon. We have two champions. One we are happy with, one we wish was a different result <laughs> based on <laughs> who we were firmly supporting in that final. Yeah, yeah. So let's start by, uh, I'll start by saying I was completely wrong about the outcome of the men's final. I really thought that Djokovic had no competition at Wimbledon. I I expected number, you know, five in a row was going to be coming without much fight, but uh, here we are. Carlos Alcaraz, who had barely played on grass before this season, he won the lead-up in Queens. Early in that tournament, he said he didn't have a chance in hell of winning that tournament. Then he went on to win that, and then he converts into Wimbledon champion, like like it's nothing almost. Yeah, there's something about being young and extremely talented where <laughs> you can start on the surface where you're not entirely comfortable, but you know what you can do, you're improvisational, you're creative, and I don't know, like, what what gives you the audacity to say, I can beat Djokovic at what is basically his home turf at this point? Well, after the match, he said that he didn't necessarily believe that he could but no he does clearly <laughs> after having done it because he did yeah it took four hours and 42 minutes there were so many times in the match where it was like well this this feels over at, in favor of Djokovic right so Djokovic wins the first set 6-1 we get to a tie break and he had won 15 tie breaks in a row at major tournaments which is a record Carlos winning that tiebreak was massive. That was a huge momentum shift. But again, in the fourth set, he goes down a break early and loses the fourth set. And again, I felt like, well, then we both said this, like, well, I guess that was a big, that was a good fight, but the match is lost. At key moments in this match, there were a couple uncharacteristic errors from Djokovic, especially on the backhand side. So that definitely helped Carlos. <laughs> yes. There was also a 27-minute game on Djokovic's serve, which he lost. Oh my! I don't God. think I've ever seen anything like that before in a match of right. such high stakes. And still, after Djokovic lost that game, he goes on to lose the third set. He's down two sets to one. You still expect Djokovic to be Djokovic. And right. somehow turn that what would normally be a soul-crushing moment for most regular players losing a 27 minute game on serve somehow have that be later on in the match a detriment to carlos 
having won that game. Right. <laughs> right. It, as I was watching it, it, it was like, okay, well, first of all, what's going on? Um, Novak so frequently gets easy points on his serve on grass. He hit double-digit serves against Verkoc. Uh, it Like, Carlos's returning was really impressive in this match. And it felt like, you know, if you wear Carlos down enough, is he going to suffer physically again like he did at Roland Garros? That didn't really seem to be a huge concern to Carlos this time. Uh, maybe it was internally. I was thinking about it because I felt like who who can manage a five-set match better than Djokovic? More than anyone in history, right? Like he knows how to do this thing. He knows how to win the important points. So I felt like the longer the set goes on, Carlos is the one who's going to be at the disadvantage. For me, what set Carlos apart from all the other challengers who have tried to do this to Djokovic on all surfaces is his return game. To be able to return like that at 20 years old, Andre Rublev, for one, could take note. Instead of taking full cuts on both wings on return, you get the ball back in play. And Carlos does that in part because he knows that Djokovic can't really hit through him on the baseline. He can chase everything down and get balls back from impossible positions, like Djokovic himself does, and then get back to neutral points in the rally fairly easily. It was, in a lot of ways, watching Djokovic play another version of himself in this match. Right, right. To me, it was amazing that Carlos won the second set tiebreak, because if he hadn't, I don't think we'd be here talking about (laughs) Carlos's first Wimbledon title. You know, I, I feel like we'd be talking about Djokovic's eighth Wimbledon. Well, yeah, that was clearly a very important part of the match. And that said, at the French Open in that semifinal, it was once at all before Carlos's body betrayed him, right? So right. it's not that Carlos hadn't found himself in this position in a slam match against Djokovic. It's just that this is on a surface that should clearly favor Novak. That should have been the deciding factor in this match. And that Carlos made that not a factor in the end was really impressive. I think like Carlos's previous matches uh, against Medvedev, It's not a great matchup for Daniil, but Carlos handled his serve pretty well. Like, it was a a pretty straightforward straight sets match against Novak. Novak hits only two aces in almost a five-hour match. That is really surprising and not great for him. He has been so good at hitting second serves at Wimbledon over the years. Like, uh, several people have talked about how he's he was able to change his second serve into more of a harder slicing serve, which is unusual for second serves. You know, it wasn't like a kick serve. It was something that came at you pretty hard and wasn't just to start the point. The way that Carlos was able to handle that is really like what made the difference here, I think. As it turned out, the real turning point, the final turning point in the match was at the start of that fifth set when Djokovic was pressing, 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 looked to have Carlos on the back foot and could so easily have gone up 3-love in that fifth set. Instead, Carlos held his nerve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Carlos then broke Novak's serve to go up 2-1. Novak smashed, of course, smashed his racket into the net post, and he's been fine for it since. I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't watching a broadcast, so I don't know what the, I don't know what the conversation was about that. Were you watching at that time? On air? Yeah. I mean, they showed it over and over and over again, but there wasn't a condemnation of it, necessarily. Okay. It was just the usual, well, oh, well, he's really upset, he's really frustrated. <laughs> yeah. 
this after Novak showed, to my mind, just uh, not very nice behavior toward the crowd, again, in this match. Essentially silencing them. He's been doing this thing with, with the crowd where if he feels that somebody or a group of people are not in his corner or not being supportive or I guess being boisterous against him or uncouth he then uses that to motivate himself and then does kiss offs and like silent like it's just it's just weird so that happened. oh see I saw that that whole kiss off thing to yes. someone in the crowd who apparently was heckling him dude you're you're a grown man you're 36 years old what is this or like are you Nick Curios? but that was re- that was actually surprising to me and it was in keeping with like this shift this week. The journal, the man, the man journalist. Let me be specific. The men journalists. Oh, they loved it. You know him finally being honest about his competition and embracing this villain's this villain role. Like, dude, shut up. <laughs> and there was there's one in particular I'm talking about who's usually very on the fence about everything. Oh, wow. Well, we're not in the same location, so you can't. Uh, whisper it or mime it to me for no. me to know. Maybe you can send it in the Zoom no. chat. No, but, you know, he made this comment about how, well, he's the best and, and people want to beat him, but he said they all want the scalp. And, okay, English is not your first language, but American journalists saying, that's great, I love that. Like, are you serious? You you didn't clock the scalp comment? That's that's not cool. Not Not in American English. I mean, it's still rampant in sport discourse and sport coverage in North America. I mean, it is. I've tried to talk about that over the years, and there's literally been zero dent made into it. Nobody no. cares about no that. No traction whatsoever. No, that's just considered sports talk at this point. But I'm just saying, like, you know, they love the... Now he's leaned into this villain character, supposedly. But then after the match, all of the outlets are like, oh talking about his kids and how much they idolize him like can you all just chill maybe get off it a little bit maybe that's just me that final game carlos (laughs) (laughs) he decides to hit a drop shot very early in that first point serving for the championship and he nets it and you're thinking well i should speak for myself i'm thinking why why are you doing (laughs) this and what does he do? The very next point, he hits another drop shot, brings Novak into the net, and then lobs him with a perfect topspin forehand lob. Yeah, that, my God, that drop shot lob combo really sealed it. It's something he's been but, using the entire tournament. Nobody yes. is doing that like he is. It's And it's such a classic combination at all levels of tennis players are doing this but it's much more difficult to do that to novak djokovic he did it to daniel medvedev at will <laughs> he, he literally toyed with medvedev in that semifinal. Mm-hmm. it was a three three and three the scoreline but it was much easier than that yeah i it, i was just amazed that he was able to serve it out on his first attempt when on his very first match point because he knows what he's up against, right? Everyone watching knows that if Djokovic gets an inch, he'll take a mile. Like he can, he has the ability to turn this match on its head, even when he's down. 
which he did in 2019, of course, against Federer. And I was just amazed at, you think about like the pressure coming at you if you're Carlos, and he was just able to, to just figure it out. Going back to that racket smash of the, the net post, right after that, we see Novak wringing his wrist. Yes. And it's like, well, here we go. Was So I saw people on Twitter saying, uh, like, oh, did he just injure himself based on the tantrum? I don't, I like, I don't know if that was a factor, but you, you can't get treatment if you did it yourself. on the changeover and then while he was playing that first game afterward he was shaking out the wrist and at that point you're wondering like okay is this self-inflicted here like is this something that's a a serious injury that he's done how stupid is this that you could jeopardize this match and potentially the rest of your season for this one moment of uh, just abhorrent behavior (laughs) yeah yeah. But then the real tell, he then was able to close out his next service game with easy 120 plus mile an hour serves. So then I, I really don't think the match was affected by that. He did take a lot of uncharacteristic falls on court during this match. I don't think I've ever seen Novak fall on court that much. Yeah, there were a lot of slips. A lot, I was really surprised. With the win, Carlos wins his second slam, his 12th overall title. And he retains his number one ranking because this was also up for grabs in this match. Had Novak won, he would have been the number one player in the world. During this match, Patrick McEnroe went to great lengths to tell us just how easily Novak would be number one had it not been for the ban on rankings from last year's Wimbledon. (laughs) And then also if he had been able to play in Australia and the Sunshine Double. It was really... And it was... A testament to how entertaining this match was that I was listening to a call with both McEnroe brothers and I was able to get through it without being too annoyed. <laughs> yeah, so I I was driving for part of the match, so I was listening to Wimbledon Radio. I know Jill Krabis was on the call and I don't know who the other guys were. Then I came back, I got to the US and turned on ESPN had the volume low, so I did not hear the commentary. Uh, I heard that the McEnroe's were, like, fully in the tank for Djokovic. Uh, I don't know if that would have been... I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I, I really... Oh, okay. Maybe I've just become so skilled at blocking them out that uh, maybe they did and I just didn't pick it up. But mm. they... Maybe you're referring to this stat that IBM did, apparently, at the start of the match, saying that Carlos had a 55% chance of winning as opposed to Djokovic was at like 45 really something along those lines and the McEnroe brothers and I believe it was Fowler they were all kicking about how do they know something we don't know like this is crazy you got to get your head checked kind of thing and then <laughs> lo and behold <laughs> yeah and then the guy from IBM tweets at them after the match and uh, here comes Patrick eating crow I would have put Novak as the favorite as well like clearly I would have been wrong uh, but Novak has won, he won the first two slams of the year. Carlos won a bunch of everything else, pretty much. He's the U.S. Open champion. He's earned that number one ranking. The Wimbledon points have since been corrected. And the fact that Novak didn't play the Sunshine Double is fully up to him. So I, we need to stop that discourse completely. Also, Carlos did not play Australia. So at this point, 
Right. With Carlos, 2,000 points left on the table, with Carlos, just like the Sunshine Double. With Carlos winning Wimbledon, being once at all looking to be in the ascendancy at the French Open, and then his body giving out, you could now make the case, a futile case, but you could now make the argument that Carlos could have gone on to win that match. And then what would have happened if Carlos won in Australia? You know, so I think this runaway narrative that Djokovic is the by and far the number one player in the world despite the rankings, that took a big hit at this tournament, just with this one match. Yes. Right, because it was such an unlikely win. Right. Carlos did this. He didn't do it at the US Open, where Novak is more vulnerable. He did it at the place that Djokovic owns. So no number one doesn't tie Federer for most Wimbledon titles with eight. Oh, you whew, you know the uh all England club breathed a sigh of relief there. For better or worse. Now, what I, I'm not entirely sure about is, uh, of course, a lot of journalists are jumping to uh, this is this is the historic changing of the guard. You know, this tournament will be seen as that. Uh, that, and perhaps even further, that Carlos winning this will signal to the rest of the field that they have a chance against Djokovic, it's because so- recently, essentially, nobody has had a chance. It certainly does not signal that, because none of these other men are even remotely in the same class as Alcaraz. No, they're not close. We saw the same performance again from Yannick Sinner, the same ineptitude in the big moment. I will, again, caution myself that he's still only 21, (laughs) right? He has lots of time to develop into something, but as it currently stands... These guys, set aside all the physical things you need to do on a tennis court to hang with a Djokovic or an Alcaraz at this point. Nadal, mm-hmm. even though he's not playing, he's still an active player. Those are the three best players in men's tennis, right? They don't and have like the mental part. Mile. They don't even have, they don't, they're not up to, to that level with the physical stuff and the tactical stuff. And then on top of that, they don't have the mental stuff. So there's still a lot of work for them to do. We've been hearing this argument about, does this then give them belief? Does this result signal to somebody else that they can do it? Eventually, it's going to happen in some way. But I don't see how this would be different than any other result in the last three to four years. It certainly wasn't the case for the Dominic team generation. Right. That That guy still hasn't won a slam. All these other guys that precede this current crop of young guys, they haven't done it. Like, this is a years-long debate, so I don't see why (laughs) this should be any different. The only person who I would not group into that same class of players so far is Holger, because like Carlos, he's shown an insatiable appetite to get to the next level. Yes, I mean, Medvedev is set apart from that generation because he did beat Djokovic at the U.S. Open, ran through him in straight sets, denied him the calendar year Grand Slam. Like, he's somebody who has done it right on a big stage. Holger is more potential than results. Like, he's made it to the late stages in slams at a very young age. These are amazing results. He he just needs to get his body up, right? Like, and the same thing with Sinner. Like, I don't think... You're not saying it's a never, 
No, it's not, just not a not. It's, it's just a not now, right? Like to say that this this group is going to be the next top three. Like I don't want to say big three. I like top three. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But we've heard this about many players over the decades, right? Yannick may be that person, but he's just not that person right now. Medvedev, the caveat with him is that he's he's a hardcore player. He's made improvements on clay and grass, clearly. He made the right. semifinals at Wimbledon, but he still has great limitations on those surfaces. Yes. And tactically, he is way too stubborn to take a next step on those surfaces based on what yeah. he showed at Wimbledon because that was crazy. Like, you're going to wait over two sets to try and finally make an adjustment, which he, <laughs> which he did to his credit against Eubanks, and it wasn't too late. But against somebody like Carlos, it just was never going to happen. Yeah. And at some point for players, like, the tactical choices are also technical. We, you know, we can watch at home and say, oh, he needs to start returning from a, a nearer to the service line. But that is easier said than done. Like, his technical game just may not be up to making those tactical choices. Right, but he did it against Chris. Hmm. He showed that he could do it. Which is why I feel like he's just stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other results on the men's side. I mentioned that Carlos took care of Medvedev in straight sets in the semifinal. And then Djokovic took care of Sinner. Not quite as easily, but fairly easily as well. Right. And then in the quarters going around prior, the results were Djokovic taking out Rublev in four sets. And that was actually a good match. Like, Andre played very well, but still wasn't close to knocking out Djokovic. He played well for a set. Was that your... I mean, that was my experience with it. I I thought he played a really good match, but still he was so far. I thought he played well for a set. Okay. He played an impeccable first set, but unable to make the necessary adjustments. Like mm-hmm. Every single time we got the loud, Bway! it was into the net. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. He, one of the, the things that stuck out to me from watching that match is that he really needs to figure out how to return better. Like, it's just not going to cut it against somebody like Novak, especially on grass. Right. And the thing is, like, returning better doesn't necessarily mean returning harder, because Carlos did a lot of, let's get the ball into play, let's chip the ball back. It does not have to be a return winner every time, right? Like, you just need to be in the point. Sinner took out Safulin in four sets. Carlos beat Holger in three sets. And to my mind, the seven six six four six four scoreline, it felt a wider gap between the two than that. Carlos was never really challenged on serve, which was also one of the revelations about him at this tournament. His serving numbers were crazy good. Mm -hmm. And then the final one, Medvedev coming back from two sets to one down against Chris Eubanks to win 6-1 in the fifth. Now this one, Chris loses the first set, you know, fairly comfortably, and he comes back and wins the second 6-1 is up for the majority of the second set, comfortably winning at 6-4. But then at the start of the fourth set, you see Medvedev starting to make adjustments. And those adjustments are causing a lot of trouble for Chris on his service games. All of a sudden, holding serve is a much more fraught thing for him. And you kind of feel this building and building throughout the fourth set to the point where if 
Chris doesn't win this fourth set, you feel like what happened in the fifth set was what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Nonetheless, an incredible run for Chris Eubanks. He's now uh, a top 35 player, huge payday. Uh, to think that he was outside the top 100 before Miami, and now he's uh, a seeded player at Slams, that is quite the run. And it just shows you what can happen with a string of two to three good results, right, at the right tournaments. Yeah. I, I mean, this is like life-changing stuff for a player who was at Chris's level before, who's played on the challenger circuit for years at this point. The money is life-changing, the ranking, being able to get into tournaments, but also just to know that you can compete with these top players. And, in, uh, I mean, Medvedev is an excellent uh, five-set player, obviously. Luckily, he had five sets to, to figure Eubanks out. I mean, it also wasn't a very long match. It wasn't a physically right. grueling match. Chris just ran out of gas in the, mm. toward the mid... Toward the end of that fourth set and then into the fifth. Yeah, it's been a long three weeks for Chris, right? He came in winning a title right before Wimbledon and then just ran through his first, what, four matches? Beating Nori as well as Tsitsipas. Yeah. On the women's side. Yeah, I, su I suppose we do have to talk about this, don't we? <laughs> this was a... You know, the women's tournament was exciting. The semis were exciting. It was just an all-around smashing success of a tournament and saturday uh i don't know just felt really deflating marketa vondrosheva is your wimbledon champion prior to this year she was what two and ten on grass like, this was not a surface that she had any success on really before this season <laughs> no i think she had one match win at wimbledon uh before this year she won two matches at berlin this year so she had four total main draw matches on grass victories before this tournament. I saw her beat Bianca Andrescu in Berlin. Mm -hmm. She had that win. And Yula Niemeyer. Yes. Who took out Angevore in the first round. So I guess the signs were there a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, and also maybe the matchup signs. She had beaten on at the Australian Open and Indian Wells this year. So two big tournaments, not not just anywhere. This woman's draw of the quarterfinalists, four of them were the top four players in the world by ranking. You had Sviantek, you had Pagula, you had Rybakina, and you had Sabalenko. And then, on top of that, you had Madison Keys, Ons Jabur, not one of the top four ranked players in the world, last year's finalist, she was there again. <laughs> you had Vandrosova, and then you also had Elina Svetolina. So this quarterfinal lineup was stacked. Yeah. Just like Roland Garros, the women's quarterfinals were fantastic. Like, the the lineup was really stacked. And just, just to say off the bat, like, we were both really, really disappointed that Ons couldn't do this. But Marqueta is not a nobody, right? And... And at the time, I was feeling very sour about, <laughs> about the result. But Marqueta is a former runner-up at Roland Garros. She's a silver medalist at the Olympics. She's been here before. She's To say that she's a shock major champion is not entirely correct. Maybe you're shocked that she won Wimbledon. But she has been on this stage before. And her career could be more accomplished by now had she not suffered those injuries. Yes. 
Absolutely. She just turned 24 years old. She's somebody who has a high tennis pedigree. You may just not like her or her game, but this is somebody who... (laughs) Which is your prerogative. (laughs) This is somebody who was pegged to, to be a top player, especially after she made that run to the French Open final. Yeah. And I guess, so getting into the final, Marquita, her game is deceptive because you might be watching it and and are thinking like, well, what is she even doing, right? It it feels like she's relying on Jabir just being bad. And that's not, it's really not the case. Like that, that lefty serve out wide, she was consistent on serve. She hits very flat. She defends incredibly well. She's forcing you, if you're nervous, she's forcing you to hit an extra one, two, three balls per rally, and she's defending deep. It I, it must be an incredibly frustrating game to play. And then you look up and the, the fans are probably like, what the hell are you doing? Like, this girl isn't doing anything. But it is a really tricky game to play against. She might not be out here blasting winners all over the court, but she's hitting a very heavy ball. Yeah, she does hit hard. You just may not be able to see it on TV. You said that, you know, you might not be giving Marquette enough credit if you're watching that match, and that it's not just Ans hitting a bunch of errors or playing badly. But in fact, it was probably a perfect storm of the both. It was. And the it relationship was. between the two, it's it's strong. <laughs> you know, but... It's, um, yeah, it's uh, dialectical. But Ans <laughs> played... A poor final. Like, there's no way to get around that. And I think that was part of her great disappointment at the end because the match was there for her, right? She started quickly, was up two love, was up a break, lost the break, got it back, was up 4 2. And from being in a position of being up a break 4 2 in a slam final to then just immediately capitulate was, was crazy to me. Because, again, like you said, it didn't look like Marqueta was doing the most, right, to, to effect this turnaround from Ons. Yeah. It just, I like, think... something, something switched in her whereby her body language in particular just was atrocious. Like No, that's it. Like, you could, we were watching and you could literally see it. And and I think many people probably looked at each other and said, what the hell is going on? Because she she goes up to love. She had points for three love, didn't get there. But then she breaks again for four two. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, it doesn't seem like she's super nervous coming into this final. Maybe she's cracked the code. And it felt like as soon as she was broken to be up four three, Still, still with the lead. Everything. She still had a lead, right? Or they were on serve, but it was 4-3 ons. It, everything fell apart, and you could you could actually see it in her body, in her face. It was so perplexing and so frustrating to watch as a fan because it, I just felt like if she doesn't, you know, best of three sets is so fast. Like, if, if you don't get this together soon, it, it's going to be over. Especially on grass, it yeah. goes goes yeah. like that in the blink of an eye. And so, if you're if you're feeling shitty about yourself, or if you're feeling nervous or panicked, this is not somebody you want to play, <laughs> right? Vondrosova is not somebody you want to see across the net. 
um, because her game doesn't rely on flash and it doesn't rely on huge risks. She's she just decided to play well, and that's what she did. Uh, and I think I now that we have a few days distance, I really really don't want to take away from Marketa because in the moment I was thinking, wow, Ans is just bad, and and that's the only thing that's going on here. But it was both. Right, because look at the players that she beat at this tournament. Yeah, see, this is why... So a lot of people, and a lot of people I respect, said, you know, I just... At this point, I don't see it for Ons. I don't think she's ever going to do it. Like, well, well, how can you say You didn't think she was going to beat Sabalika here. You didn't think she was going to beat the defending champion. Like, why would you say it's impossible looking at the run she had out of nowhere? Are we talking about two different things? I'm talking about Marketa's run. Oh, oh, <laughs> we are talking about two different things. <laughs> <laughs> Vondrosova beat Jabor in the final. She took out Svitolina easily in the semi. In the quarterfinal, she was uh, up against it. Down 4-2 against Pegula in the third set. Came back to win, 6-4. She took out Boskova in three sets. Dana Vekic, who was one of the big dark horse picks to win this tournament... She took her out in straight sets in the third round. Veronica Kudimertova in the second round. And then Peyton Stearns, who's been playing well this year, in the first round. Uh, so as far as trying to paint Vondrosova's run as one of these, you know, oh, here comes another WTA player to vulture a slam to get one that they didn't have to beat anybody, you know? Like, surely <laughs> her run was not akin to what Ons did at this tournament had Ants gone on to win the title. Right. It's right. not what Svitolina did at this tournament. At one point, when Svitolina beat Iga Sviantek, she became the first person in, or like the third person ever, and the first in however many years to beat four slam champions in one tournament. Mm. And then the very next day, Ants joins her. <laughs> <laughs> this is no cupcake draw. Like, I, I'll give you that, definitely. You beat the number four player. You beat last year's runner-up and the runner-up at the U.S. Open. Uh, we talked at the beginning and at the midpoint that the bottom half was just incredibly stacked. It was really difficult. And Ons had to, you know, the draw did not fall apart. She had to play those great players. At the same time, as Pam Shriver pointed out on air, yes, there was a lopsided you know, top to bottom half draw, you know, comparison. But the mm. top half was the half that had to deal with the rain delays more than the mm. bottom half. Yes. So Vandrosova yeah. was out here waiting around to play matches day after day after day, having to play, you know, back-to-back days where some of the folks on the bottom half, especially the top-ranked players, didn't have to. Yeah, I appreciated that insight because I think, oh, like, watching from home, it's easy to forget that stuff just because there's so much tennis going on. Back to uh, my confusion earlier <laughs> was that after this final, people were feeling very down about Jabur and said there's, you know, I don't, I really don't see it for her. I don't think she's ever going to do it at this point. And it's, it's so disappointing uh, how quickly people turn because, and they were saying, well, th- at this stage of women's tennis, somebody's just, you know, there are several people who are just going to snatch it from her. Like, well, but she played most of those people and they didn't do it. You know, she beat Rybakina, the defending champion. She beat Sabalenka from a set down. 
Sabalenka she really, I mean, she was in a position to win. Again, similar to Roland Garros semifinal. But I just, I don't know how you can look at Anza's run here, given a terrible grass lead-up season, and say that she's never going to do it. Well, the context is, for the majority of the early parts of her career, that was her biggest obstacle. Her lack of mental strength. Right. right. Like, she was right. known to collapse time and again. Right? Mm-hmm. And she's been working with a, a mental coach. It's something she's actively been working on. And it's still it's still there, clearly, to right. some, to some right. degree. But at the same time, if you're a glass half full kind of person, she's able to win a lot of those matches now where she wouldn't have previously. Which is what she oh, said totally. happened against Sabalenka. She said, you know, old aunts would not have won that match. And so what is it at play that brings this about? And the easy answer is that she's under a lot of pressure. She's not playing with the stakes that most normal tennis players are playing under in these big finals, right? Like Right, right. And I don't want to assume like what it feels like for her. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know the type of pressure of pressure that she feels having broken all these barriers and everything she's done has been a milestone for Arab women, for African women. I don't, I don't know what kind of pressure she feels like in that arena, but take all that away and you still have reached three Grand Slam finals and not been able to, to take it. So, so every time, every subsequent time you go you're going to feel that pressure even harder. Right. People are always going to have something to say. Bottom line, who right. are the other players out here making three of the last five slam finals? Who are <laughs> I they? know, right? So, like, damn, damn, give her a break. Her accomplishments are vast, nonetheless. Yeah. And one th- I just knew it was going to happen after this, hap- after this result, the immediate comparisons to Yana Navarro. And yes, I just really wish people would take Yana's name out their mouths. Right, especially because she's not around anymore. It's just rude and disrespectful also to Ons. And my saying that feels like I'm being rude and disrespectful to Yana, but they're, they're separate people. And the trauma that Yana went through in her life and her career to, that she eventually overcame, it's not, uh, you know, a perfect fit. It cannot be a perfect fit. These are two completely different people with different life experiences and different pressures. So, uh, just yeah, resist I just the impulse, like like, please. And and to to boil down Novotna's legacy to being a choker and then finally winning Wimbledon, like she had an incredibly accomplished career in singles and doubles outside of losing to Wimbledon finals. Andy Murray has lost how many Grand Slam finals? Kim Kleister's lost four Slam finals before she won her first. Like, this is common. Yvonne Lendl, the same way. Not to say that Ons is any of those people. Just to say that the comparison is just kind of mean to both of them. Although, uh, I, I know you noticed, Princess Kate definitely tried to get her Duchess of Kent moment. <laughs> Well, Ons was not uh, going to give it to her. There was no crying no. on her shoulder. No, and poor, oh my god, poor Ons. Like, 
you just want to get off the court. Can you, like, she was polite, she was so nice to Kate, but do you think that Ons wants to be consoled by the princess of the United Kingdom right now? Like, no, she just wants to go home. Congrats to Marketa Vondrosova. Hell of an achievement. Now a top 10 tennis player. She's the 10th ranked tennis player in the world. Yeah, came in at number 42. Again, she's had big, big accomplishments before. Her career has been really sidelined by injury. In that Tokyo Olympic run, where she was the runner-up, she was the one who beat Naomi in her home country. And for Ons, I I see this as still a stepping stone, a building block. That, yeah, that because mental coach, she hasn't been... That mental coach needs to earn their money right now because you need to put this into proper perspective. Right, because she has not been in particularly great form this year. Anything you want to say about the other quarterfinalists? I, well, I think we talked a lot about Svitolina in our last episode, but then she went and beat the number one player in the world in the quarterfinals. <laughs> yeah, that's Benchic, a, that surprised yeah. me. As you know, and as the listeners know, I had gone fully on board the Sviantec solving grass and winning Wimbledon train. <laughs> I was... Yes, it felt like mere mere hours before this happened. Um, Iga, I, I still... No, I still agree with you that Iga is getting better and will figure out grass. I think she will be a Wimbledon champion. Just, it was not to be this time. Svitolina was obviously feeling herself... And we talked on, on the previous episode that her game wasn't always this aggressive and that you you felt that she was playing better than she ever had before her pregnancy. Well, I'm, and I, maybe oh, not sorry. playing better, but she was hitting harder for sure. Oh, okay. I'd never seen as an aggressive Svelina as I have over this right. run and throughout the French Open run. Like, it's a, a completely and not, different And definitely player. not consistently. And she won that match against Iga outright you know she didn't wait for Iga to to make mistakes Svetlina served her spots really well she played aggressive on the baseline and I, it was I don't know it just felt different like she actually went out there and took that match the other quarter finalist I want to quickly mention here is Jessica Pagula she now has made six slam quarterfinals and has lost all of them. And this mm. one, she was so close to getting to her first semifinal against Vandrosova in the quarters. And so you look at it <laughs> in one way, and you may be tempted to class her with an Andrei Rublev, right? Who is now 0-8 in slam quarterfinals. They're the obvious comparison. But then you... You look at it as, well, she is one of the most consistent players on the WTA Tour. And again, is that so bad? <laughs> for her, probably yes. Like, she she wants more. But, uh, like, four years ago, did you think that Pagula was going to get to six Grand Slam quarterfinals? No, I and did not. And still going? No. no. I, don't, I don't think that really anybody foresaw that. But also what you're seeing is you have this cluster of women who are consistently making deep runs at slams over and over and over again now. Ons has made yeah. three of five finals. Sviantek is the number one player. She's won four slams. She's going to be around for a while. Sabalenka is maybe the most consistent player in the WTA Tour. 
not the slam I mean, level. she she leads the race this year. Then you have Rybakina. You have all these players that are consistently doing well. That and this is the type of quarterfinal lineup that we're going to keep seeing. I think for the foreseeable future, and I think it's only going to get better. It's going to get tougher yeah. for these women to break through. But it's exciting for me. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. And even Madison Keys is not particularly consistent, but she's been here a lot of times. Right, she's been in the second week of slams a bunch of times now, and it was exciting to see her here again. Now that we've wrapped the singles action at Wimbledon, run us through some of the other results. Who are the other Wimbledon champions? In juniors, we don't always talk about juniors, but there's some exciting stuff happening. The uh, 16-year-old DC native Clervy Ungunaway has won her first Grand Slam singles title, uh, this time without dropping a set. She was the doubles champion at Roland Garros with Tyra Grant. And now she's the Wimbledon girls titleist. She's coached by her dad. And I saw this uh, quote with the support of Mary Pierce. I feel like I missed that the first time. Did you know that? I didn't. She also has the support of Zena Garrison as well. Zena was tweeting about it today. Yes, I loved that. Uh, Clervy had told Zena that she uh, <laughs> looked up to Serena growing up. I mean, she's only 16, but <laughs> she's not grown up. But I loved, loved seeing Zena showing support to Clervy on Twitter. And on the boys' side, the British got their first junior titleist since 1962, Henry Searle. In women's doubles, wow. <laughs> what a moment. What a moment. This woman... <laughs> she's just unlike anybody else in tennis. <laughs> she disappeared from the game for 18 months. Barbara Streetseva, her partner, had a baby, uh, kind of retired, and is now back. And they are now the oldest pair by their combined ages to even reach a Grand Slam final, let alone win it. She, she won the French Open, not with Streetseva. And so now she's won back-to-back slam doubles titles. Streets of Us says that this is going to be her final Wimbledon and that her final slam outing will be at the U.S. Open next month. Right. So she has won the first two legs of a Sue slam. Can can we coin that now? Uh, it, the Sue slam bit, is coming. <laughs> it may be a bit early. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, it is theoretically a possibility. She has now won the women's doubles title in her most recent three appearances at the tournament. That's a big deal. Yeah, and this she, is also their second Wimbledon title as a pair. It's Streets of a second slam title in doubles, and it's Shea's sixth. So Shea is not worried about it, and she's sashaying her way into the International Tennis Hall of Fame after dropping out of the tour for almost two years. People didn't really know where she was, but she was just living life traveling and now she's back i look forward to seeing her back on the singles court as well yes she almost qualified for this tournament in singles losing in the final round of qualifying on the boys on the men's side i mean well uh, did did, did you get it wrong (laughs) skupski and kulov won the men's doubles title i actually didn't write this down but i felt like we should probably mention it I have nothing more to add on that. No disrespect to those men, but... (laughs) (laughs) Both guys have been around men's doubles for a long time, uh, but it is the first major title for both of them. 
Naomi Osaka. This doesn't have anything to do with Wimbledon, but Naomi Osaka is a mom. She and Corday welcomed their baby, Shy. This was announced by Corday in concert at the Calgary Stampede in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I guess it, it took a few days for that news to reach tennis Twitter. I guess not a lot of folks are at Corday concerts in Calgary on tennis Twitter. And it was unclear if it was like real, if it was, you know, fact check news or whatever. But yeah, he's the dad. He would know. Uh, Naomi gave birth last week. And it's only a week after Ash Barty had her baby, Hayden. It's crazy how you can talk about Naomi Osaka in this context without referring to Corday as her rapper boyfriend. It can be done. <laughs> right? It can, it can be, done. be done. Yeah. And I didn't use any of the racist trappings of baby daddy or any of those things. Naomi says that she's so eager to get back to tennis. <laughs> he tweeted, <laughs> now, now back to regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> For a while, folks were unclear about what the name of the baby was. And so her tweet saying, you know, well, this was a, a cute little intermission or something like that with mm -hmm. a picture of the baby. Some folks were like, is the baby's name intermission? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, please. <laughs> Let's be serious here. <laughs> Jenny, Jennifer, do you prefer Jenny, Brady? She's coming back to tennis, finally. She is she's back. In, it happened she's already. She's in, Grand, in Granby, Quebec. She oh, won. well, tell me. I, didn't, I don't know. She won tonight in straight sets. Awesome. I, she's been gone so long, I feel like a lot of the young people probably don't even know who she is. But her, uh, her <laughs> announcement video was so funny. Like, this woman is actually really funny in a dry way. She announced that she's, you know, she's here in Granby, she's playing, and also I'd like to announce my new sponsorship, Flex Seal Duct Tape. It's a super uh, wide duct tape. It's the most random, I mean, I absolutely love it. Like, I, I want to go buy Flex Seal Duct Tape now. <laughs> That's all I gotta say, honestly. It's, uh, it's challenging to do these remotely, I feel like I always get to, like, look at you and communicate non-verbally you know yeah and then there's the worry about talking over each other so i feel like we are less inclined to banter this way yeah so all that to say i totally get what other podcasters feel you know overall i would say this was a far more interesting wimbledon than i expected honestly indeed I mean, especially because Novak lost. Like, that was my definitely my highlight. I absolutely loved it. And uh, I hope I hope to experience it many more times. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, you can't just keep that. And there's so many things you tell me, oh, that's private. That's private. That's not fit for air. That's just between the two of us. That's That was not private. I think that's pretty clear, my feelings on that man. Right, but do you have to do all that? I do. I, I really do. Because, you know, you know, my feelings extend to the journalists who, like, can't help themselves from, like, hagiography. Is that how you pronounce that word? Um, let me, the, let me other, the other option is what? Hagiography? <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, you can, you can cover a sport without being, like, 
oh my god, like, nobody is better in defeat than Novak Djokovic. Like, he's so nice. Like, y'all, have you been asleep for the past three years? I mean, can we just stop? I mean, it is a noted feature of him losing. It's something we've said before. He is often very gracious in defeat. He is, but he damaged the net post. I mean, I hope they put in a work order. I hope he's got a hammer and nails and he was out there today on Monday, July 17th, fixing the net post. You know how they are very touchy about the court at Wimbledon. It's just like the difference between in-match Novak and post-match Novak. It's like everything is always forgotten. You know, Mm. it's like, what a great dad. Look at his kids. Like, I don't care. I really don't care. (sighs) I'm sorry. You got it all out? I think so. I saw today that he was fined $8,000 for unsportsmanlike conduct. So I assume it had to do with the net post. Yes. Yeah, that was it. And he was already keyed up because he had been called for a time violation. And he was almost called for another time violation later in the match, which resulted in this protracted discussion where he was booed and it was hard to even hear what they were saying. But uh, Fergus used his discretion not to call him for a code because the next time violation would have resulted in the loss of a first serve. And here is Nick Curious out here tweeting, calling Fergus Murphy a peanut again. Right. Previously it was a potato... I mean, if Greek yogurt is a racist saying, then potatoes are racist saying by the same logic, right? <laughs> I'm not wading into that. <laughs> As that match went on, though, the bouncing of the ball was crazy. Like, <laughs> and so what, what the issue became oh for Novak God. was, and it's the same issue that Rafa's had, that anybody who has issues with time violations now... It has to do with the discretion of the umpire and when they call the score, right? Because that's when the class yes. starts. Mm-hmm. And it's been compounded by, rightly, ball kids and ball people not handling player towels anymore. So they have further distances to travel to wipe themselves off before they start the next point. Like, there's more involved. So I do get that. But right. in this instance, the bouncing of the ball was just absurd. It was like... 2010 levels of bouncing of the ball. <laughs> yes. And and Rafa complains about the same thing, about the distance he has to travel to the towel. And Novak mentioned that yesterday. But what is not monitored is the time between first and second serves. So a lot of times when you see a player is frustrated or resentful about the time violation, they'll take an hour between serve one and serve two. There's relentless ball-bouncing men as well. Anyway, we are Wimbledon out. Yeah, we're uh, starting the U.S. Open Series. Wow. Uh, well, we'll uh, we'll see you guys in New York. <laughs> we'll it's, be there. What, five weeks away? <laughs> yeah. I need to sleep for those entire five weeks. Thanks for listening to us during this Wimbledon coverage. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can find everything BodyServe related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.